Hello, this is James Kent, the Movie Morlock, at your service. Uh, formerly of stuff we've seen for those listeners who are subscribers and are like, well, what the hell is this? What is going on? Uh, well, it's still me, James Kent, uh, but the show is going to change, I guess, a little bit. Uh, you may be hearing more of just me, but I do hope with this uh, revamped show, we will have guests and uh, you certainly can be part of that. So uh, reach out to me via email, moviemorlock at gmail.com. That's the address. And say, hey, you know what? I'd love to be a guest. And uh, all you really need to do to qualify uh, being a guest on this show is to love movies and have something to say about them. And the goal would be that you would uh, reach out to me and say, hey, there's a film that I would love to talk about. And that's what we're going to do. So uh, on this show, now we'll probably try to focus more on just a movie rather than a series of films. Um, and then for those who are wondering, like, well, what, what, what's going on? What, what happened to Teal? Well, the show is called uh, Stuff we've seen, not stuff I've seen. And uh, if Teal isn't uh, available, well, then that makes it hard to call it stuff we've seen. And, uh, uh, you know, Teal, uh, he hasn't gone anywhere. He's still around. Uh, no worries. But uh, he's just uh, pretty busy and uh, he just, I don't think, has time right now to focus his energies on a weekly program. Um, but that's not to say that uh, we might not, you know, we may hear from him. Uh, from time to time uh, on this show, and I and I hope we do. Uh, I hope that he you know gets in touch uh, when he has something that he wants to talk about uh, as far as the film goes, and uh, you know we'll still have uh, when his schedule permits. We'll have folks like Bill Muir, Bill from Queens. Uh, I'm sure he'll be on, and also maybe we'll have more appearances from our good friend Michael McQuilkin. Again, it should be a lot easier now. Where basically you got a movie, you're dying to talk about it. Get in touch with me moviemorlock at gmail.com and we will uh, have a chat. Also, uh, I'll be working on a new uh, Movie Morlock website. It's going to take a little bit of time. I'm hoping to get that up real soon. Uh, so there is still the Stuff We've Seen website. Uh, we probably won't be updating that as frequently. You know, if you found it and you're listening, well, then you found it and you're probably subscribed on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And the goal is to have that uh, seamlessly merge over so that you don't lose any episodes. Um, but like I said, uh, more information coming, you know, things get get started a little bit rocky, but they got to start. Here it is, movie Morlock time. It's a little odd because I'm just going to be talking to you on this episode by myself, so that will probably be a shorter episode. Uh, but I do want to talk about uh, two movies that I've seen, and they're, they're both rewatches. I watched them on the Criterion channel, and if you're subscribers to the Criterion channel, which I hope you are, these are two films that if you haven't seen them, I want to try to convince you to give them uh, a look-see. And they've been mentioned on the show before. Bill and I actually just talked about one during our neo-noir episode. There's another film that early on in Stuff We've Seen, one of our first episodes with uh, Teal and I, we also talked about this film, this other film. And that's the first one I want to talk about. Uh, Criterion is doing a series on New York City-focused uh, movies. And it's sort of in kind of a tie-in with 
And so to commemorate that, they've got just a ton of features and shorts. Uh, there's some interesting stuff uh, on the artist Basquiat. There's a film that he was actually in in the early 80s, like 1981, that had been lost for years. And even the sound tapes were gone. And so everything had to be redubbed in order to like present this film. And of course, Basquiat had long since passed away. So... What they did was they got somebody that sounded like Basquiat to to dub in his voice. Uh, so it's not perfect, but it's kind of an interesting movie. I think it's called Downtown 81. And then there's also a very fascinating documentary about Basquiat by director uh, – uh, Tomer Davis, uh, who's married to Mike D from the Beastie Boys, and she also directed Billy Madison. Uh, she knew Basquiat and had videotaped him back in the day, like the mid-80s. And so that is fascinating because it's a very candid look at the artist when he's very relaxed and kind of not putting up any kind of front for the media. Uh, so I thought that was very fascinating too. I watched that. But uh, as part of this New York series, and there's a ton of films you should check out anyway on there, uh, is one of my all-time favorites. And I rewatched it and I was reminded just how amazing a movie it is. It's uh, Martin Scorsese's After Hours from 1985. And the history of that film is that Scorsese was just weeks away from starting production on Last Temptation of Christ and the studio pulled the plug, and he was very disheartened, uh, and he felt like he could uh, he'd put so much time and effort into making this film, something that he wanted to do from his earliest days as a film director. I think that he received the book from Barbara Hershey on the uh, set of Boxcar Bertha, right? which is uh, one of the earliest films he made with Roger Corman as producer. And so he'd wanted to make this film for a very, very long time. He was crushed that it wasn't going to happen. So he thought, I could just go into kind of a cocoon or maybe what I need to do in order to get myself out of this depression is just work, work on something. And there was a film that was being prepped with a young, uh, untested director uh, named Tim Burton, and he was going to be crew, uh, directing this film after hours. But he agreed to step aside so that Scorsese could take it over. And then, of course, Tim Burton went on to direct Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which came out about a couple of months before After Hours did. And I was not, in 1985, I would say a huge Martin Scorsese uh, fan. And it wasn't because I didn't like him. It's just I didn't really know his work. Uh, the name wasn't synonymous with some of the titles. Like I probably had maybe seen Taxi Driver for the first time, but wasn't aware that it was Martin Scorsese that directed it. Uh, I was probably more aware of it being a Robert De Niro movie. Uh, I think I was aware that, oh, Scorsese did Raging Bull, but I probably also had not seen Raging Bull at the time. I had seen King of Comedy, and I saw that in the theater. But I didn't know that that was Martin Scorsese had directed it. Like, it was just a movie that I saw. When After Hours, uh, the trailer started to hit, I was immediately intrigued and wanted to see this film. Thought it looked great. And one of the things that attracted me to the movie was its star, Griffin Dunn. And 
why Griffin Dunn, why did that attract me? It was because I loved him in American Werewolf in London, which I saw as an 11-year-old when it came out in the theaters. It made a huge impression on me at the time, uh, mostly because of the visual effects by Rick Baker. Uh, and I also really enjoyed the performance by Griffin Dunn. So I wanted to see this film. And I remember... I don't know all the details. I don't think I saw it at my local theater in Woburn. For some reason, I, I, I feel like I went up north uh, to Danvers to a theater to see it uh, with my mom. So wherever I watched it, <laughs> I saw it with my mom. And I didn't fully enjoy the movie because I thought it was going to be funnier. Like I thought it was going to be more of an outward comedy. And I also had that feeling of being very uncomfortable when I watched it. Uh, and that is one of the things that Teal and I talked about when we first discussed the film three years ago almost. It was this pit in my stomach because the situations that Griffin Dunn kept on getting into, it bothered me because I wanted him to be able to get uh, home, which is what he's trying to do in most of the film. He goes downtown to meet this woman he meets in a coffee shop and she invites him uh, mostly on the uh, sort of artifice of getting this uh, artist's plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight, um, which is a sort of, I guess that's the MacGuffin of the movie. But he really, you know, he, Griffin Dunn's character, uh, Paul Hackett, he is a word processor, uh, probably what would be considered a yuppie. He lives in the Upper West Side, like in the 90s in Manhattan. Uh, he goes down and, again, chaos ensues. So, while I was happy with the film at the end, he finally resolved, it was it was kind of painful for me to watch this movie because it was very uncomfortable. Maybe about a year later at the Somerville Davis Square Theater where my friend uh, Robert Otis and I would go frequently, it was playing as part of this like multi-film experience going on at the day, like where it was to be a Saturday and they were showing like four or five movies and... After Hours was the first film of that four or five films. And I recall we go to see the film in the Somerville, and I think we were up in the balcony perhaps, and it was not very busy in the theater, just a few people. But instantly there was a vibe, and I, I think the vibe was very similar to when I first saw The Big Lebowski, where it was a packed crowd audience, it was opening weekend, and most of the people in that theater didn't get it, but there was a select few, like myself, that really understood the comedy that the Coen brothers were putting out. And I was laughing uncontrollably, and I think people were, like, uncomfortable with how much I was laughing. Now, if you just took people like myself and a few others in the theater that got it, and imagine if just all of us who get the movie are the only ones in the theater, this 800-seat theater where you maybe had 30 people total, uh, including my friend Robert and I. And because I had already seen the film once and knew how it ended, so I knew kind of what his journey is, I could relax a bit to a degree that I could not the first time around. And I was just instantly enjoying the groove that this film was giving me. And there was a person in the audience, this man by himself, and he, even things that weren't necessarily funny, he was laughing uncontrollably. So whatever was going on in this guy's mind, he just loved it. And the more he laughed at things, the more 
we laughed. And things that shouldn't be comfortable in the movie, there are speeches that Rosanna Arquette, who plays the woman that Griffin Dunn meets, she tells sort of a really kind of tragic, weird story and uh, of being uh, raped for hours. But then the Griffin Dunn is listening to the story and he's horrified. But then the way she tells the story and goes on, it didn't seem to bother her too much. And the offhanded way that she tells the story kind of freaks uh, Griffin Dunn's character out. And the guy in the audience was just laughing and laughing. And then also this thing where she had a her husband, her first husband, who she may or may not still be with because she drops all these little uh, bombs of information <laughs> during the conversation that she has with Griffin Dunn. He would always uh, scream out, surrender Dorothy, when he was uh, climaxing during sex. And this guy in the theater just was wailing with laughter at everything she was saying, and it just made us laugh. And so by the end of that, I just thought it was fantastic. And then the third time I saw After Hours in the theater was when I got to the NYU campus. Uh, They played, there was a theater called the Cinema Village. It's still there, but it, it was a revival house at the time. And I lived one street over from the Cinema Village my sophomore year of college, which was the first year I got to NYU. And that one year, I spent a lot of time at the Cinema Village seeing these double features. That's what they did. They always played two movies. And they did within the first few weeks. It was probably because they know that, you know, at the film school every year, new kids come. They all want to check out, uh, you know, whatever the films of the directors that went to NYU. And obviously, Martin Scorsese went to NYU and Spike Lee went to NYU. And so those two filmmakers were pretty huge during the days that I went. They played a double feature of After Hours and Taxi Driver. And a kid who was in my uh, first uh, sophomore film class, it was a sight and sound film, this kid, Mike Nuzzo. Um, and he's not with us anymore. And uh, so I'm, I'm still always kind of broken up about that still because um, he's been gone for ooh, like 17 years now. And he was a really fun uh, character. And he was like, we got to go and see this double feature. So we did. And it was fun to watch After Hours now living down in Greenwich Village and being very familiar with what the actual geography of Soho was and the streets that are involved. So I could appreciate it in a different way. And also conventions of the movie that might seem a little surprising to us viewers today were not so surprising back then in 1985. I mean, 1985, you didn't have a bank card that you could go to an ATM and get money. And so one of the things that happens is uh, Griffin Dunn goes downtown and he brings $20 with him and he loses it on the cab ride downtown, which is a very funny scene. And that really wouldn't be out of step because I remember that's kind of when you did have cash machines, which we did um, in the late 80s, he kind of took out 20 bucks and 20 bucks would pretty much cover you. And so I can imagine a scenario where he'd have $20 and you figured oh, that's enough to get the you know cab downtown and have a drink and then come back up. And so he has no money. But he also has no, has no bank card. He has no way to get back uptown. And one of the things that I didn't understand the very first time I watched it was like, well, why would you just walk home? Uh, but once I landed in New York City and understood things a little bit 
better. A, somebody who lived in the Upper West Side in the 90s, that's the last thing they're even thinking of that they would walk home. And at a normal pace, it would take about an hour and a half to walk home. And the film isn't quite in real time, but the events that unfold during the evening when he gets downtown to Soho happen, you know, in pretty rapid succession. And so as he gets deeper and deeper, it isn't... uh, it isn't surprising that that's the last thing he would think of is to walk home. But uh, eventually, if things didn't uh, if spiral out of control the way they did, he probably would have eventually walked home. I, again, appreciated the, the film more, and then it was many years before I saw it again. And finally, you know, I bought it on, like, DVD, and it's still something that I haven't seen in probably about 14 years. So I decided to watch the film, and... Instantly, I appreciated the movie all over again. One of the things that is just so great, uh, and I've read a lot of reviews about the movie and discussions, and they really talk about this as being sort of a pure cinematic experience. Uh, I guess it's maybe you know light on plot, or they a lot of people think of it as of a lighter Scorsese fare, where I actually think it's one of Martin Scorsese's most successful films because it's very self-contained and. The script is very sharp and it really resolves itself. And it gives Martin Scorsese a great opportunity uh, to kind of use all of his tools and powers as a filmmaker to tell this story in a way that only he could tell it. If it was done by any other director, it would definitely have a different vibe. The movie has a real darkly comic tone to it. Uh, But it is funny and it's probably, I would say... Scorsese's only kind of comedy or his attempt at real comedy, though there's a lot of funny stuff in many of his films. But the way he moves his camera, and this is the first time he was working with cinematographer Michael Ballhaus, who did a lot of the films of uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender. And then, of course, Fassbender died in the early 80s. So Ballhaus suddenly became available and Scorsese worked with him on several features. So he worked with him on this, The Color of Money, uh, Last Temptation of Christ. He also worked with him, of course, on Goodfellas, which is probably their crowning achievement, and Gangs of New York. And then The Departed was the last one. And it's funny is because I'm not a huge fan of The Departed. And I also think that the cinematography, I don't know if the budget was weak or what, but I, I think that the cinematography in The Departed is one of the worst aspects of the movie. But here, working with Bauhaus, you had a cinematographer that really got with the whole camera movements that Scorsese liked. And they do a lot of innovative things without any CGI, of course, didn't exist at the time. And so, you know, that was one of the things as as a teenager I loved the most and really caught my eye is that I really wasn't thinking from a cinematographer's standpoint what, what the cinematographer brought to the movie. I just was like... Scorsese does all these great camera moves. Uh, But this time watching it on Criterion, which is a great print, by the way, I was reminded of just what a master he is. He moves the camera with such authority. Uh, There's a scene when Griffin Dunn and Rosanna Arquette are talking and conversing in a diner, and the the, the move-in with the camera is so slow and subtle that he's able to basically go to a close-up without you realizing he's going to a close-up. It's like you don't even notice the camera moving in. It's just so slow and deliberate. There's other times where he has the camera having 
Griffin Dunn on one side, and then he slowly moves the camera to the other side so that you basically get the reverse shot without having to do cuts and edits. And this camera has to really focus on Griffin Dunn. Griffin Dunn says a lot, but it's really about how Griffin Dunn reacts to the situations around him as he listens to people. He's actually a pretty good listener in this movie. His facial expressions as he tries to contain himself, there's a moments where he breaks out uh, and he can't contain himself anymore because the situation's just gotten so absurd for him. But a lot of the time, his character is really absorbing all of the stuff that's happening around him and the absurdities uh, of these characters. Then there's this aspect that I really love of this movie, and I mentioned this before when we talked about it a few years ago, but it's really, it's this dream like film. Uh, sometimes it's been referred to Kafka-esque. Uh, I don't really know if I refer to it as Kafka-esque so much as I look at the entire film and the structure as a dream. Now, I don't think the movie is a dream. I'm just saying that it plays out like the kind of dreams that I recall having. I call them non-completion dreams where you start off with a situation and then you just keep going from event to event to event. Things get really strange and wacky, but they all sort of make sense and you're trying to achieve an ultimate goal, but things keep getting in the way. And that is what this film does so brilliantly that the obstacles that get in the way of Griffin Dunn being able to return uptown just fit in a nice, nice puzzle. And then you get some great, really interesting performances uh, from John Hurd, who plays a bartender who wants to help Griffin Dunn. And then you have like a crazy performance by Rosanna Arquette. And then you have one of the first performances of Linda Fiorentino playing this interesting artist friend of Rosanna Arquette's, Kiki Bridges. And then she has a bizarre, uh, creepy artist boyfriend played by Will Patton. And you've got all sorts of other characters. You've got Terry Garr, who plays a lonely waitress who's kind of stuck in the late 50s, early 60s. And then you have Catherine O'Hara, the first time I ever saw her playing a Mr. Softy truck driver who has a very bizarre sense of humor. Um, and, and again, the list goes on and on. Uh, but I actually think that the performance by Griffin Dunn is one of the great uh, acting for an actor performances of the decade of, of, of the 80s. And it's just definitely, uh, uh, I don't think it's fully appreciated. I think this is a movie that it's a great discovery. If you haven't seen it, you got to watch it. And again, I didn't want to try to give too many plot points away, uh, but it does end. Uh, the ending of the film was changed. It ends one way and you actually see that ending in the movie. But then it wasn't really working for test audiences. People felt a little bit cheated, I guess, and they didn't like how it re resolved because I guess people felt that the ending might be a little bit too negative on Griffinstone's uh, character. So the editor, Thelma Schoenmacher, uh, she was dating the legendary director, Michael Powell, at the time, and he was hanging out, and he gave a great suggestion to Scorsese of how the movie should end, and so they refilmed an ending. And it's funny because... I'm not sure. They never mention what day of the week it is, but you get the impression that it was a Friday. It was the end of a work week that Griffin Dunn goes out and he meets this girl and that he was a lonely guy. But the ending of the film suggests otherwise. And I think that's just like a thing where they had to change it in the ending that they resolved. Maybe it was a Thursday in New York 
Thursday is almost like a Friday. Uh, things are open really late. Uh, so maybe it was a Thursday. Um, that's another thing that's also very interesting. Uh, in the thing is that this is a film about loneliness, uh, lonely people. Uh, Griffin Dunn's character, Paul, is a very lonely guy. I mean, he goes into a coffee shop and he's reading a book. He's reading Tropic of Cancer, um, the Henry Miller book. And it seems like that's a, a book that's almost like designed for him to sit there and hope that somebody will engage him in conversation, which is what happens in Roseanne Arquette. And she is kind of a, a lonely person. And when he starts on this journey uh, down to Soho, most of the action takes place with just him and one other person. The characters he meets are almost, uh, and this is male and female, they're almost offshoots of him, which is, again, I think another thing that leads to this notion that it is a dream, right? So everybody that he encounters is a facet of himself. And I think that's also very, very fascinating. Uh, so there's just uh, so much to absorb in this film that goes deeper than I think when people think, oh, this is just one of those lighter fares <laughs> for some Scorsese. This isn't like one of his uh, signature works. This is where I feel that they're wrong. Now, uh, the second film that I want to mention, and I probably won't spend as much time on it, is something that Bill and I mentioned when we were talking about our film noir series. It was something that Criterion had not included. And what happened is at the end of August, a few of the films that they had on their neo-noir, I guess, had didn't have the, the rights to beyond August. So they had to uh, take those off the series. Uh, films like Brick, which, you know, if you hadn't got it, didn't get a chance to watch that, it's too bad, but maybe you'll catch it somewhere else. One of the films that we thought should have been on the Criterion's neo-noir list, it just was like the classic neo-noir, they did add this month, and that was Michael Mann's 1981 film Thief with James Caan in probably what I would consider his best performance. The other great performances of his would probably be The Godfather, obviously, and uh, Misery. But it is the just it's sort of the role of a lifetime for an actor like James Kahn. He's a guy who is a lifelong convict. He's also a, a bank bank vault or vault uh, thief. He can break in to vaults. Um, that's probably why he was in jail for like 12 years. Uh, he's now his day job is he's he, he runs a used car lot and he seems to also own a bar and he seems to be doing okay, but his first score that you see at the beginning of the movie where you get to see him apply the tools of his uh, trade, it goes awry in the, the money payoff. Uh, it seems like there was some involvement with some other mafia figures uh, on the person who fences the jewels for him. And so he gets entangled with this other crew, uh, which is headed by Robert Prosky, who Bill and I mentioned what a tremendous performance this is and this was robert prosky's uh, first motion picture acting role I, I still don't know the history of this guy but uh, he is a very intriguing figure comes at you with all the smiles and promises but behind the scenes he's as ruthless as they come but 
with this new sort of arrangement where it looks like James Caan might be doing jobs for this new crew comes the potential for a lot of money. Uh, but other things are happening that make James Caan want to get out of the lifestyle. Uh, he has his mentor, longtime friend, and, and, and probably was somebody who looked after him in prison, who's still in prison, uh, is played by Willie Nelson. Uh, it's not a, a large role, but it's a very intriguing role, and it makes you recognize that Willie Nelson would show up in movies from time to time. He did a lot in the early 80s. There was a film that he it was kind of starring him, Honeysuckle Rose. And then there's a weird Alan Rudolph movie called Songwriter. And I think that it's a missed opportunity that Willie Nelson wasn't in more movies because he was really good. And he's great in this film, even though he only has a few scenes. And so he's sick and dying in prison and... James Conn wants to try to get him out and he also wants to he wants to get married and have a kid and he's fallen for this woman Tuesday Weld who works at the bar that he owns and he kind of uh, he's obviously rough around the edges he's not well educated and he's a guy who's trying to make better for himself but he can't help but let loose the fact that he's not very educated and just to, and just the way he talks and how he approaches even somebody like Tuesday Weld. But he lays his cards out on the table of what he wants in life and what he wants out of his relationship with Tuesday Weld in this very brilliant scene in a diner. And then his next score is getting set up with Robert Prosky and Robert Prosky's people. And then he wants to have a kid, but Tuesday Weld can't have a kid. But Robert Prosky is able to make things happen and they're able to adopt a kid. So, and he gets a house and a lot of things that Robert Prosky has set up for him. And as he gets ready to do this big job, um, which is sort of like the crux of the film is building up to this big job, there is money that he's supposed to get out of this big score. It's like oh, close to a million dollars. And this should set him up. And he really wants to leave Chicago, which is the area that they're at, and maybe go to Florida or something and just maybe uh, switch his whole lifestyle. And of course, uh, Robert Prosky wants to keep him for a long time doing what he does best. And so it seems to be some strings attached to the money where Robert Prosky is going to invest it in some, uh, you know, uh, food chains and uh, convenience stores and other things. And that doesn't really bode well with James Kahn, who you know, just wants his money. Uh, so, and then there's, a, again, there's a fabulous uh, big heist uh, that's a sort of big uh, climax point in the later half of the movie. And then there's the resolution afterwards. You know, again, some of how the film resolves at the very end, I, I think that Michael Mann was still learning as a director. I think he kind of built better climaxes with the films like, say, Heat. Um, this definitely has a lot in common with Heat. But you see some early themes, uh, just a lot of the way Michael Mann handles night scenes, like sort of glowing neon. And then there's genius move, which is really funny because uh, one of the things notorious about this movie at the time, uh, the Razzie Awards nominated Thief for worst score uh, because the score was from Tangerine Dream, which had done a score for... William Freakin's Sorcerer, 1977, and, and that was a bust. And so this score, with its synthesizers and that whole Tangerine Dream feel, uh, and of course Tangerine Dream would just 
make a name for themselves in movies uh, with some very iconic 80s scores like Risky Business, uh, Legend, and Three O'Clock High. This sort of kicked off the 80s and kind of said, hey, we're in a different decade now. This is going to be a little different. I think audiences at the time, Thief was not a big hit. They were maybe not used to that kind of sound, but it, it just adds an additional element uh, that kind of raises the bar on this film. And it just is a great gritty, uh, moody, neo-noir movie. Uh, it's really fantastic. And again, I've, I've seen it a few times. And then I went back and rewatched it on Criterion. And it's just a film like a, like a good wine. It gets better with age. And I think the more you watch a film like Thief, the more you enjoy it. So uh, that's the other recommendation I have. Uh, so After Hours and Thief, both on Criterion Channel, and you should check them out. Well, that's going to be all the time uh, I've got today. And uh, again, I hope you're going to stick with the, uh, the movie Warlock here. And... We're going to talk about films that I've watched. Maybe it'll just be one. Maybe it'll be two, but it's not going to be a ton of films every time because it's just me. But again, when I have guests, could be a different story. Maybe it'll feel a little bit like stuff we've seen, but it's a new chapter, new day, and, uh, you know, it's scary and it's exciting, uh, but I just love talking about films, and I've and I, and I gotten feedback from listeners who really enjoy the show and and then know that they didn't want it to end. So, you know, for you, listener, I'm here and I'm hoping that I do hear from you and we continue on this journey and that, you know, maybe you'll come on the show, you know, well, it doesn't take much. You just need some kind of microphone and we'll get you hooked up and uh, we'll record. All right. Uh, this is the movie Morlock signing off for now and I'll be back. Uh, I'm going to try to do it every week, bringing you something once a week. And if the mood strikes me, maybe twice. All right, everybody. Goodbye. And go watch a movie or two.